0: Welcome to the November 17th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Ezekiel chapters 5 through 7 and Hebrews chapter 12, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Okay, so let's dig into Hebrews chapter 12. In verses 1 and 2, this is a a very familiar uh, passage to seasoned Christians. And verse 1 says this, Therefore, uh, so when you see the word therefore, you need to look to see what it's there for. (laughs) And uh, what it does is it connects what has been said and, and then says, Okay, based on what we have just said, let's talk about some ramifications. Let's talk about some conclusions. So, what was in Hebrews 11? Well, that was the chapter of the Hall of Faith. That was all of the men and women who demonstrated faith, some great, some small, but all of them demonstrated faith. And they found the Lord to be true and faithful. So, therefore since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. Some people think, oh, that means that people in heaven are watching us. And then others would say, no, people in heaven can't watch us because it wouldn't be heaven if they were able to see all of the heartache down here. Uh, I don't want to dig too deep into this, but I think both of those views are flawed. Uh, I I do not believe that verse 1 is referring to a heavenly crowd that is actually watching us. I don't think so. I believe that the large cloud of witnesses is all of the names and so many more uh, that were mentioned in Hebrews 11 um, that testify to the fact that the life of faith resting in God's word, resting in God's character, is worth it. And there are so many who have gone before us that testify to that, and so they are the large cloud of witnesses. It's the legacy that they've left behind. So I think that's what it's referring to, not necessarily people looking from heaven. So then the second thing is, you know, some people say, well, if they were to see from heaven, it wouldn't be heaven. And I don't agree with that either, because the Lord knows everything that's going on. He sees every hidden sin, every heart... Every sinful heart here on earth, and yet it's heaven to him. Um, and and some would say, well, he's God. That's different. Okay. Well, let's talk about the angels. The angels are down here, and they know what's going on, and they see the sinfulness of mankind. And yet, when they're in heaven, it's heaven to them. And so, I I I don't believe this passage is has anything to do with people in heaven that are looking down on us. I think they could, they might, maybe. But this passage is not talking about this. This passage is saying that those who have gone before us have lived lives of faith, testifying to the fact that it's worth it. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So he's he's using running language here. And he's talking about like in the Greek races where... Um, before they raced, they would take off their robes. They would take off anything that would, you know, could trip up their legs or would weigh them down. Uh, they got rid of everything, everything, so that they were able to run and to, to run well. And so he said, you know what, we've got things we've got to get rid of. Let us lay aside every hindrance. Okay, so I don't know that that's necessarily talking about sins. It could include sins, but I think when he says, let us lay aside every hindrance when we're running the race of life, living our lives for King Jesus, I think he's talking about anything that would distract us from the purpose for which Jesus died um, for us. Uh, that would anything that would distract us from living a life that is pleasing to him you know obedient to him that it's accomplishing the purposes that are focused on the kingdom he said i want you to get rid of every hindrance um sometimes that's hobbies habits you know i mean any number of things if it's out of control anything is anything approvable to god within reason is is okay but if it is hindering us from living the life that god's called us to live then we've got to get rid of it he also said and the sin that so easily ensnares us and so every one of us has at least one sin that's really our struggle and in different seasons of life it may be different but everybody at any point in their life has one thing that is that's a struggle for them and so he said you know what get rid of that too you have to get rid of that so that you can live for jesus The end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, the race of godliness, holiness, living a life on purpose for King Jesus, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's run with endurance the race that lies before us, living that godly life on purpose. Verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And so this is another thing as as a runner, uh, one of the things that I uh, realize is that if you are running with your eyes down on your feet, uh, you can run into a wall, a pole, I mean, any number of things because you weren't looking up, you were looking down. And oftentimes also realize that, uh, you know, whenever you are running on fumes and you just feel like, man, I don't feel like I can keep on going. I feel like I got to quit. Well, you put your eyes up to the horizon and you find something. You find a street corner, a stop sign, a building or something and say, I will not stop until I get there. And then when you get close, find something farther out. Keep your eyes on that and let that thing pull you in. Let it keep you going. What's a Christian to keep our eyes on? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The word pioneer is speaking of the one who blazed the trail. Imagine, if you would, we're going into a jungle and we've got a destination in mind, but there's no way that we can get there because it is just Packed with brush and trees and everything else. And so Jesus takes out his machete and he goes chopping through that brush and he blazes the trail. We just follow behind him, right? He is the pioneer of the faith. He's the one that blazed the trail. We really are to be a Jesus follower. He went first and we follow behind him. It says he's the pioneer, which means he blazed the trail, but he's also the perfecter or the one who reached the end. And so he's the one at the end of that trail who's now in heaven, who's waving his hand at us saying, come on, come on, come this way. He's the perfector of our faith. And so we look to Jesus, the one who lived this life and blazed the trail. And we also look to Jesus who is now in heaven and we hear him calling us to greater degrees of holiness. How was Jesus able to endure this? For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus was motivated by happiness, but it wasn't happiness necessarily in this life. At least that's not what we're told in verse 2. We're told that it was joy, it was happiness, but it was the happiness of heaven. He was able to endure the cross. He was able to endure betrayal. He was able to do endure injustice and murder on the cross, He was able to endure all of those things because he was looking forward to the happiness of heaven. Boy, that really informs how it is that we are to think whenever we go through difficulties. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so Jesus has sat down. His job is complete. He is now at the right hand, the strong arm of God, the the one who is in his position of the Father's strength. And he is there um, at the right hand of the throne of God waiting on us. We spent quite a bit of time on those two verses. Those two verses are rich. Believe me, there is so much more that we could get out of that, but we've got to really pick up the pace. Look at verse 3 for consider him jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up and so he said keep your eyes on jesus he didn't give up and and you may give up in difficulties and trials and any number of things that happen to you in this life you could grow mentally feeble and weak and just want to just sit on the sideline. But he said, keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured all of the bad things and so that you won't grow weary. Let his life motivate you and inspire you. Of course, we have the Holy Spirit within us who's enabling us to do all of this, but we're keeping our eyes on Jesus. Verse 4, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know what, Jesus shed his blood, he died. He died for following the Father's commands, for living his life on purpose for the Father. He said, you haven't, obviously you haven't, because you're reading this letter. But he said, you've not gone through all that Jesus has gone through, so you need to suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) You need to have the Holy Spirit fill you, make yourself available so that the Holy Spirit is in charge of your life, is leading you, is empowering you, is giving you wisdom, giving you endurance and everything else. And you need to keep your eyes on Jesus and you chase after him. Okay, so let's look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as... Sons, And now what he's going to do is he's going to go back to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. This is something that the writer of Hebrews does prolifically in this book. He's constantly pointing back to the Old Testament, whether bringing to memory some of the, the characters or situations that his audience would have been familiar with, or even quoting Old, Old Testament scripture. So here he said, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. When he says, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him for the Lord disciplines, the one he loves and he punishes every son he receives. And so what he's saying is, is that, yeah, life can get hard. Life can get hard, but we could sense that, oh, it's just, it's just living in a broken world. And these are just bad things that are happening to me and we don't see that God is involved in it. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is God is absolutely involved in those things. God is untouched by sin. God cannot sin, but God can decree things to happen that are sin and uh, determine things to happen that are sin, and in some way he is untouched by sin. But he allows things even in to happen to us. And the writer of Hebrews, quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, says that you need to realize, friend, that life is going to get tough, but God is, is allowing that toughness into your life. Maybe you sinned and God as a father, as a loving father, is coming after you to discipline you, to, to re- reproach you. Or maybe it's just bad things that are happening. It wasn't because you sinned. It's just you live in a broken world. Even then, it's God who is bringing those difficulties into your life because a good father wants... To their child to develop character and develop toughness and endurance and so that they can make it in life. And so he said, that's how you need to see your difficulties. Keep your eyes on Jesus, but realize that when those bad things come, and God is working out, when those bad times come your way, God is working out his purposes, and he's doing this as a father. But now he's not quoting Proverbs chapter 3. He actually gives a little bit of commentary. Verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. You know, endure difficulties in your life as discipline. And discipline doesn't necessarily mean uh, getting punished, it means as the Lord is chipping away at areas in our life that need to, to go so that we can more reflect the image of Christ. Endure suffering as discipline. And then he says, "God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline?" He said, "God is is treating you as a father treats his children—a loving father who wants to develop godly, uh, productive adults. Uh, he's going to bring—he's going to bring some things that are difficult into your life. You know, maybe uh, the dad is going to make you give you." or errands to do or chores to do that you don't like, but it's it's for the purpose of developing character and a work ethic and, you know, all sorts of other things. And he said, God is doing that too. Verse eight. But if you are without discipline, if if your life is easy and if there are is nothing that comes into your life that is hard, if you are without discipline, which all receive, you know, he's saying everybody has a tough life, but he said if you did not have difficulties, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He said then if you want the easy life that you, you know, if you had the easy life that you wanted, And nobody has that. I mean, it's just an illusion that, you know, some people have easy lives. Nobody has an easy life. But he said, if you were to get that, well, then you don't belong to God. He said, then you're an illegitimate child, and and you don't belong to God. You're not sons. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? Shouldn't we say, God, I don't like this difficulty, I don't like this bad thing that's come into my life, but Lord, I know that you are so in control, so in charge, that you have brought this into my life so that you can make me more like Jesus, and so I am going to submit to you in this. I'm not going to fuss, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to hold my hand up and pronounce that you are being unjust, I will submit to you. Because I know that you are bringing these things into my life for my good. Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time. That's dads, right? Short time as in 20 years or so, 18, 20 years. They disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he, God, does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. You know, our our fathers... If we had a, a conscientious father that uh, that wanted us to be mature adults with a good work ethic and you know all sorts of other good things, having character, um, they only had us for a short time, and then you know we uh, they were just giving suggestions because they couldn't they couldn't force us to do anything when we moved away from home. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, "But God is the one who's in charge of you all the time." And he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. He wants us to become more like Jesus. That's why he brings difficulties into our life. Verse 11 No discipline seems enjoyable at the time. No kidding. <laughs> no discipline, no difficulties, no problems in life, no tragedies, no trauma seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you know, you're going through a difficult time where there's not enough money and a bill is coming due and you don't have the ability to pay that bill, or there are health concerns that you are going through, or there, I mean, just name it. In that, in that moment, you're not finding that pleasurable at all. It's not enjoyable to you. In fact, you know, I, I would question your sanity if you said that things like that were enjoyable. I would think you're being indifferent, you're being aloof. You know, maybe you've built a protective wall around your heart and you're just not feeling things. And so he says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Yes, that's true to experience. But he says later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That when we are able to look back later on, if we cooperated with the Lord, if we were on our knees as we were going through that time of difficulty, if we were depending on Him and resting in Him and submitting to Him and crying out to Him and we were going through it well, then later on we're probably able to look back and say, wow, I can see how the Lord really, really got rid of something bad in our life or helped me to develop something good in my life, right? That's what he's saying in verse 11. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. He's saying, uh, once again, like I said a while ago, suck it up, buttercup. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. I know you're going through a lot of difficulties, but get up, put your chin up, and keep going. Keep your eyes on Jesus and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. I'm telling you, something that I've noticed is, it's and I was talking to somebody about this today, it's not what happens to us, it's how we think about what happens to us. And for the Christian, that is so vitally important. We can go through times of difficulty, and if we're not careful, we can develop a woe is me attitude, and eventually we can get develop such a wonderful woe is me attitude that eventually we don't have any friends, we don't have anybody that wants to listen to us. If we, if we really want to get good at that, or we can go through it in a way that recognizes that Jesus, we're not going through anything that was more harsh than what Jesus himself went through, that Jesus is the one who's blazed the trail of holiness, and he is all I'm doing is following him, relying upon his Holy Spirit to enable me to do that. Jesus is in heaven. I'm looking forward to heaven one day. And even in the difficulties, I find, like Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, I'm finding happiness in heaven, something I'm looking forward to more and more and more. And as we go through those difficult times, as we go through those difficult times well, then we don't come out of it wounded. You know, maybe there are some scars and things, you know, there's some difficulties. But we don't come out wounded. We don't come out traumatized. We don't come out messed up. Yeah, we, we walk with a limp like Jacob did after he wrestled with the Lord, but we're okay with that because that's a reminder of something that happened where we were relying upon the Lord, the Lord sent something, allowed something into our life, and he is making us more like Jesus as a result of it verse 14 Pursue peace with everyone and holiness without it no one will see the Lord I'm telling you there's no shortage of people and I was talking about this to somebody today as well that I am amazed at how unhungry so many people that claim to be Christians are for the word of God How unhungry they they people that claim that they're followers of Jesus how unhungry they are for holiness They're content in the fact that they supposedly said a prayer that supposedly gained them access to heaven when they die, and I say supposedly because there are many who think that they are saved who are not genuinely saved, and on... The day of judgment in Matthew chapter 7, we're told that Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. And if you are honest with me, you know, Jesus would essentially say, if you're honest with me, you never wanted to know me either. You really never wanted to enjoy a relationship with me. So I didn't know you. You're not saved. Depart from me, workers of of iniquity. Um. So many people who profess to be Christians are not demonstrating in their life, in their desires that they truly belong to the Lord. In verse 14 it says, chase after peace, pursue peace with everyone. That ought to be our goal. We, we shouldn't be rabble-rousing. We should pursue peace with everybody and holiness. But then after holiness, he says, "With it, no, without it, no one will see the Lord. So if we are not chasing after holiness, we're not saved. If we're not chasing after holiness, we're not going to see the Lord in heaven one day. Salvation is by grace. We are saved by grace. We are maintained in that salvation by grace. It's all grace. But how do I know that I have genuinely placed my trust in Jesus? How do I know? It's going to play out in the way I behave and in my affections. And he said, if you are not chasing after holiness, that's a telltale sign that you don't belong to Jesus. Verse 15. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many." Yeah, you know, he's just been talking about difficulties. Sometimes those difficulties come from life. Sometimes those difficulties come from other people. And what he said here is you need to not fall short of the grace of God. Live in God's grace. And as you live in his grace, breathing the air of God's love and forgiveness for you and his His. Strength to enable you to live the way that you should. As you are living in God's grace, you need to not let a root of bitterness spring up. I'm telling you, I know what it's like. I know what bitterness is like. I've experienced it before. I know many people who have as well. Bitterness is like, it's like anger or a feeling of injustice or despair or something like that that doesn't get resolved in in a timely way and in a healthy way it can ferment and becomes bitterness where you're just angry at the world something bad happened you're angry at somebody you're angry at circumstances you feel like something unjust something bad happened and it and it never got fixed and it was so wrong and you're left to hurt because of it, if you're not careful, bitterness will set in. You need to breathe the grace of God that just as God in His grace has forgiven us all of our sins, we've got to let things go. Don't let the root of bitterness spring up. Verse fifteen, verse 16, he says, "...and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal." So now he's once again referring back to an Old Testament character uh, saying, let there not be, and clearly he's referring to the reader, don't you be an immoral or irreverent person uh, in regard to the things of God, in regard to our relationship with God. Once again, if we do what verse 14 says to pursue holiness, well, we don't even have to worry about verse 16. Verse 17, for you know that later when he wanted Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Okay, so there is something that is brought up here that good Christians, good solid Christians, fall into two camps on. And it's this, when God's Holy Spirit reaches out to us, in salvation, when God's Spirit reaches out to us, calling us into repentance over sin, maybe maybe we're saved, but you know we stumbled into sin, and God's Holy Spirit is is working to convict us, to cause us to repent of that sin, to confess it, to turn from it, to repent, and then to get back on the road to holiness. The question becomes: Will we always respond positively? Some think that uh, salvation, the, the rules are different, that, you know, they would say, well, we don't always respond positively with sin, you know, because sometimes God's trying to convict us and we uh, just want to keep staying in the sin for a little while longer. And so they would say that we're not able to, um, that we are able to reject the Holy Spirit's promptings. But when it comes to salvation, they would say we are not able to reject Now, I believe in a God who's sovereign. I believe in in a Jesus who said that of, in, in John 17, I believe he said, of those, Father, that you have given me, I have lost none. I know those truths. I know those. But I believe that what he's saying here is whenever there is a time of conviction, whether it is salvation or whether it is dealing with sin in our life, that when God's Holy Spirit is really working to convict us of that sin, we better respond right then. Because if we don't, if we don't, we may at a later time say, okay, now I'm ready, but now the Holy Spirit is not there to receive our forgiveness. He's not there to to welcome us back in. Now I'm telling you, there's a, there's a big topic here. We're not talking about legal forgiveness. If you were saved, you your sins are all forgiven. They were nailed to the cross. And so what it ends up being is the, the the relational aspect of our sin. That when we sin, it it tarnishes our relationship with the Lord. It it causes us to grow distant. And so we need to confess our sin as Christians. Uh, to get back into a right relationship with God. But what I'm reading here in verse 17 is there's a time to repent, and then there's a time later on when we may not be able to repent. You know? Verse 17 again, "...for you know that later he, Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find an opportunity for repentance." Now, part of that fell on his heart. His heart was not capable of full repentance, but that would also go to the fact that, well, the Holy Spirit, or however it was that the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament with hearts, um, that, uh, that he, he was knocking on the door for a while, but then he went on. And so Esau was then no longer really able to make things right. I'm just telling you, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. We often read that ver- those verses and think that it refers solely to salvation. I don't believe that it refers solely to salvation. It is salvation, but it's also dealing with sin. When God's Holy Spirit begins to convict us, don't gamble on whether you're going to make it right at a later time your heart may get hard later on and you won't be able to come back in repentance. Respond when the Holy Spirit convicts you. Verse 18. As we look at verses 18 through 24, what we see is that Jesus is better than uh, the Old Testament again. This is the theme. This is something that shows up quite often in the the book of Hebrews, and uh, we see it here. Listen to verses 18 through 21. This is speaking, of course, as I read 18 through 21. This is speaking, of course, of the Israelites at Mount Sinai, where they were terrified. Listen to verse 18 through 21. For you, the writer of Hebrews, the uh, the, the listeners, the readers of the book of Hebrews, you have not come to what could be touched. To a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to the blast of trumpet and the sound of words, those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes Exodus 19, verses 12 through 13. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, and now he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19, he quotes Moses as saying, I am trembling with fear. Okay, So in verses 18 through 21, the relationship that they had with God was not one of a father who is looking after them and loves them and cares for them and is disciplining them in love. God did love them, God did discipline the children of Israel, but it wasn't like the relationship that we have with the Father. In the Old Testament, they were terrified. The closer they got to God, the more He was seen by them, the more terrified they were. They pleaded, please don't speak another word to us. They were terrified. Even Moses said he would trembled with fear. Okay, so that was the Old Testament. But remember the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better? Listen to verses 22 through 24. Instead, you, the the, the readers of Hebrews, you have come to Mount Zion. So we're not at Mount Sinai. We're at Mount Zion. Do you know where Mount Zion is? Mount Zion is simultaneous with the city of David. And in the city of David on Mount Zion, the temple was built. That was where the temple was. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering. So we read this and realize, ah, he's not just talking about Mount Zion there in Jerusalem on this earth. He's really talking about something that's going on in heaven. Instead you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem to myriads of angels a festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven to a judge who is God of all to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect you don't hear anything in here about fear and terror and dread do you there's no storms there's no gloom there's no darkness there's no blazing fire this this is a party you know this is joyous He said, this is what you've come to, writer of Hebrews. Why? Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. So it's because of Jesus. Once again, we're under the new covenant. The readers of Hebrews were under the new covenant. You and I are under the new covenant as well. And Jesus is the one who's made it so much better. Thank goodness we don't live in the, in the Old Testament. Thank goodness we don't live in that time where we are under fear and dread and gloom. No, the closer we get to the Lord, the happier we are, the more grateful we are. Because our high priest, Jesus, is there. Verse 25, "...see to it that you do not reject the one who speaks." So, so what he's done is he said, you know what, you don't live under the Old Testament. You don't live under the Old Covenant. You live under the New Covenant. Yes, God brings difficulties into your life, but he's a dad and he loves you and he's developing godly character in you. That's why he's allowing bad things into your life. He said, you're not under the Old Covenant where there was fear and dread and gloom and darkness terror. No, we live under the new covenant where God the Father does speak awe into our hearts. And whenever we stand before him, we're going to fall on our faces, but it's not because we're filled with terror. It's because we're overflowing with joy and gladness and everything else that that is a part of being in front of the one that our hearts are made to love. He said, based on that, whenever the Lord speaks to you, you better do it. See to it, verse 25, that you do not reject the one who speaks to you. For if they did not escape when they rejected him and warned them on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Okay. So Jesus not only makes things better, things are also weightier right? The writer of Hebrews is saying, I don't want you to reject the Lord when the Lord is speaking, when he is speaking in his word, when the word is being proclaimed, whether it's taught or preached or written or whatever else, when the word is proclaimed and, and it's clear what you need to do, the adjustments you need to make, you need to do it right then. One is because we live in a better covenant, and why wouldn't we for someone who loves us so much? But the other is, what we see in verse 25, it's because it's weightier. It's weightier. That if, in the Old Testament, if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on earth, then how much more will will people who reject the Lord Now, under the new and the better covenant, the one where the Lord is so much closer and he's ripped the veil from heaven to earth so that God is much more accessible. How much greater is the guilt of the one in this new covenant when they reject, when they do not obey? I'm telling you, grace is wonderful. It's incredible, but with grace comes a greater responsibility to, to comply when the Lord speaks. Verse 26, his voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, and, and he quotes Haggai chapter 2 verse 6, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Okay, so I believe that's talking about the future time when the great tribulation has happened and and everything. I mean, it's not just the Lord is bringing judgment upon people, but the earth is rending. Uh, the the it says the sky is going to roll up like a scroll. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, and so he shook the earth at that time. But now he has said, "Hey, you think I demonstrated my power in the Old Testament? You haven't seen anything yet." Just read the book of Revelation. And so therefore, we should respond because of the love relationship that God is offering us in Christ, but we should also respond in obedience because there's more expected of us now than them. Verse 27, this expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. So this is talking about the things that are not shaken. I believe he's referring to our faith, those of us that are trusting, resting in Jesus, we will not be shaken. Um, and it, it, again, it's it's grace. It's all grace. We are doing our part, but it's ultimately God-initiated and God-sustained Verse 28, "...therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." And so even in this age of grace, even as we've come to understand God's love for us much more clearly than they ever did in the Old Testament, because God actually sent His Son that we read about. The Old Testament, they didn't know about that. New Covenant? Yeah, we do. We read about it in His Word. But yet, in that love relationship, God is not our buddy. He's not someone that we can presume on. He is God and we are his creatures. We are his children if we're saved, but we're also those that are mere mortals. If it were not for his grace, we would be nothing. And so it says, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. Our relationship with God is not one that presumes upon the relationship. It's one where we obey and we delight in Him. When the Old Testament says, delight yourself in the Lord, then we desire to do that. We want to enjoy Him through Christ. But we also realize that He is God and we are not. And so we, there's a seriousness to our joy. There's, there's a weightiness to our happiness. And that weightiness causes us to realize that God... Is not to be trifled with he is God we love him if we love him Jesus said then you'll do what I say you'll obey my commandments but we also realize that uh, that love does not mean that we can presume on that love and live like we want no God remains a consuming fire And so in that love relationship that we have, that growing love relationship that we have with the Lord, we ought to desire to grow more and more and more into it. And the way that love is demonstrated with the Father, one of the clearest ways is do what He says. Do what He says. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gift you came to earth and then you died and then rose from the dead to give to us to make available to us thank you for your holy spirit who caused us to realize our guilt before you and caused us to hear and understand the good news of how it is that if we just turn from our sin and trust in you and we can be forgiven of our sins and declared righteous, and then we get on that road to holiness. Thank you for this, Lord. But I pray that because we are in a be- under a better covenant, under a better promise, the New Testament as opposed to the Old, I pray that we would not presume on it, but that we would grow. We would do our part as we are relying upon your Holy Spirit to do his part in our, in our lives. That as we do what Philippians says, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That we are resting in you, the God who is at work in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to demonstrate our love for you by doing what you tell us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.